For the week of Thursday, February 7th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, we talk all about Lobby Day 2019 with the lead organizer, Carolyn Barcliffe. Indivisibles will be heading to Olympia on February 15th for a day of learning all about how to lobby and then actually putting that knowledge immediately to use by going to the state capitol and lobbying our legislators on an array of issues. In the second part of the show, we have our week in review. Hey, told you there were new things coming. This week, we talk about the State of the Union and the Democratic response, and also about Howard Schultz's potential independent presidential run with Indivisible Washington's 8th Chris Petzold and the chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad. We will also have our weekly call to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. During the midterm election, in addition to taking back the House of Representatives, Democrats made serious gains in state houses all across the country, including here in Washington, where Democrats extended their margins in both chambers. And as we have mentioned, February 15th is Lobby Day in Olympia, where we will have a chance to go and meet with our representatives and senators and make our priorities known for the 2019 session. And leading the charge on all this is Carolyn Barcliffe. She is the founder and director of the Washington State Indivisible Coalition, or WASIC, She also sits on the steering committee for Olympia Indivisible, and she is the lead organizer of Lobby Day, and she joins us now to tell us all about it. Hey, Carolyn. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. So Lobbying Day is being organized by WASIC. As I said, that is a state indivisible coalition. And I do want to discuss uh, what that's about uh, in a little bit and how that all came together. Uh, But first, the Indivisible States Guide recommends taking on three issues to advocate for when you lobby your state legislature. So what are the three three issues that indivisible groups as organized by WASIC will be focusing on? And, uh, And how are they chosen? So what we did is we had a statewide survey issued, and uh, when we got the replies back, we tallied everything up, and we came up with actually four areas. The uh, the first three um, are not in this particular order necessarily, but uh, the environment and climate bills, um, healthcare, including mental healthcare, which is a priority of the Senate Dems this year. And uh, clean government, ethical government, voting rights, and all of that, um, what that entails. And then the fourth category was other. And that's for bills that rise to a level of importance. We know they're important to the citizens of Washington um, and to our members that need our attention and our support. Okay. I mean, that all makes sense. And I actually want to talk about how those uh, particular issues are going to be lobbied. Um, But, you know, Indivisible State Policy Director uh, Jiggy Othilingham talked on this show about the importance of working with existing advocacy groups around the issues that your particular Indivisible group is going to be lobbying for. Is that something that's being incorporated here? It is being incorporated. It is not at anywhere near its full maturity um, yet. However, what we've what we're doing is we're taking the position papers um, of the different coalitions that are um, focusing on these areas. We're looking at their research, their statements of support or opposition, and um, utilizing their work. We're not about reinventing the wheel or redoing what somebody else has done. Um, those those groups that have been concentrating on these areas have far more information than we have at this point, and so we're all about using it. Um, we will be later on uh, working to um, join those coalitions in a more meaningful way. 
or create some where they don't currently exist. Yeah. Well, I mean, all this is such a new endeavor, so it'll be very interesting to see where it all leads. Uh, So let's talk about how Lobby Day itself is going to work. So the agenda starts at 9 a.m. in Olympia on the 15th. What is happening first? So from 9 to noon, we'll have a uh, briefing during which time um, each of those four areas will be addressed, those priority areas, the bills that we've decided that we need to focus on. Um, keep in mind that bills can still be dropped until uh, the middle of March. Mm-hmm. So this this list may shift um, as we progress through the legislature. But for that day, we'll have a list that we're in the process of winnowing down now um, of bills that we want to advocate for when we go in the afternoon up to the Hill to, for appointments with our legislators. Uh, so the, the, those appointments are being set um, for the first one to begin at 1245. Um, the last one will begin at 245 uh, and end at 3. And at that point, then everybody will return to the, the location where we're having the briefing. And from 315 to 4 p.m., we'll have a debriefing, talk about how it went, questions people had, um, if they need more information, um, if their legislators need more information, and wind it up. Great. Well, I mean, it it sounds incredibly comprehensive. I will just mention that uh, there is only space for 60 people in the community center session, the the one that's happening from nine to noon. So attendance is limited there. Uh, But the session is going to be live streamed, I understand. So where can people watch that? It'll be live streamed on our Facebook page. Um, And the idea was to get as many indivisiblers involved as possible. Mm. As we do have limited space, we still want to reach out to those who are unable to travel the distance to come here for that day or who, um, for any other reason, are unable to watch it at the time that it's occurring. So we're calling that our virtual lobby day. Um, And uh, anybody, it'll also be recorded. So it'll be available at a later time as well for people to watch. Great. Well, I'll have that link for people at indivisiblepodcast.org. So, you know, I will just ask you, uh, what are your ultimate goals for this day? What what in your mind will make this day a success? Well, one is that we are, become present in every single legislator's office on the Hill. That'll be a success. And the way that we want to do that is not just by the 60 individuals who are in attendance, but also following um, the morning briefing, uh, the document that is given to the attendees to hand to their legislators um, will also be available um, up online. And we're going to ask every indivisible member in the state that afternoon to send that one pager electronically to their legislators' offices. We also are going to have basically what we're calling sister LDs, which is if we have an, an, an LD that is not represented by an attendee, then we are going to ask the indivisible chapters in that LD if they will send us a message to their legislator and we will deliver their message and our one pager on behalf of uh, indivisible. Um, so we want to step into every single office. We want it to be clear that we're present, that we're here, that we're not going anywhere, and we are going to be very active 
um, in their in per, them performing their jobs. Right. And and I do know that you're looking to have all 49 LDs represented in some way, uh, particularly those on the coast and in eastern Washington. So I, I will say if you are listening and you would like to make sure that your LD is represented, I would encourage people to get in touch. So then afterwards, for the duration of this year's session, what will be the next steps? People will be making follow-up phone calls and the like to uh, keep the pressure on? Yeah, we'll have um, continuing um, information going out on uh, what changes are happening to a bill in process, what our response needs to be, whether that be phone calls, postcards, letters, visits, um, all of the above. We'll, We'll keep on top of it. Well, part of what informs that is tracking bills, and uh, tracking bills is pretty tricky. Um, the government websites here that the state has set up are not great in that regard. Uh, WASIC has designed a bill tracker. So talk briefly about how it works. So this bill tracker has weekly, um, all the new bills that were dropped the prior week are added to that list. When people go and look at that list, their first thought can be, oh, my God, there's thousands of bills on here. Yeah, there's 2,600 bills to be heard this session. And and as you said, there are more to come potentially. Yes. And the point is that um, those are all the bills that have been dropped. That does not mean that we are looking at anywhere near that number of bills. We've broken down into the into four research groups, into each of those four categories I described earlier. And the research lead looks at that list and will identify which bills they think we should probably look at closer. Um, And we use also this information from other organizations on what their priorities are, um, on what we uh, learn from our legislators on what their priorities are, what the the chair of each committee's priorities are for that for this session. So we we take a whole lot of information into um, consideration. And once the research team lead has identified that, what we um, ask is that those who want to do research and complete a bill report, which we have how to fill a bill report, an example of a bill report, and a bill report form for anybody who's interested, plus a list of resources to use to do that. Um, anybody who wants to complete a bill report for us then puts their name on there, completes that bill report. It gets looked at by the research lead and then gets gets posted and anyone has access to it. Right. So this is very much a human driven endeavor. Um, and yeah. so when uh, a bill, say, makes it through committee or is due for a vote or things like that, those are the sorts of things that can then be found on the bill tracker. Yes, it, it can be found it, during the whole process. You can find information. Um for each of those that we do have a bill report for. Excellent. Right. Well, it takes an army to put something like that together yeah. and to keep yeah. it all current. So thank you for that. Uh, how and uh, where will people be able to access it? So it's on Google Docs and um, the link to it is on our Facebook page. Um, it is updated um, weekly. If we have more folks that uh, have the right qualifications for working with that list, Um, we will add them to the group and perhaps we can get it updated more frequently. But right now, the the bandwidth we have is for once a week. Um, However, bill reports are being added as they come available. Yeah. 
Well, and as I said, it really is a gargantuan task. So uh, once a week, considering that this is an all-volunteer army, uh, is formidable. So thank you for doing that. Um, So finally, let's talk about WASIC. That is the Washington State Indivisible Coalition. And you you have spearheaded this. And this is something that I think has been sorely needed. It's designed to keep indivisible groups throughout the state in communication and working together, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the whole idea. This is about uh, creating um, that location where any indivisible chapter in the state, um, we all have different capacities depending on our time availability and whatever else is going on in our life. So Mm -hmm. uh, some folks have more chance to look into things in depth and others don't. So what we want to do is we want to be able to provide the information, uh, one-stop shopping kind of location for people to come um, and be able to learn about the legislation and uh, legislative priorities. And so then we, we want to make sure that not only do we collect all that information, but as I said, we have it available to everyone. And really one of the things that this is designed to do is to make sure that efforts don't overlap and to coordinate our our efforts, correct? Right. We want to get rid of redundancy. We know that if we have... Uh, 20 people doing the exact same thing in 20 different locations when 20 people can be doing 20 different things that we succeed far better when we don't have people doing the exact same thing (laughs) um, over and over again. So, yes, the idea is to reduce redundancy. It's to increase our reach as uh, indivisible to and our influence and to allow folks just another way of um, being informed. Um, and participating in our government. Well, so talk about how the communication happens right now between these groups. Right now, we, you know, this just got underway um, weeks Understood. ago. Yeah. And so we have our Facebook page. Uh, if anybody, any indivisible can join that. Later on, we'll open that up um, to others as well. But Right now, the Facebook page, we have a Slack work group, which is the work group. It's where the the workhorses go to um, discuss all the issues and what we need to do next, what our next steps are in planning for for our lobby day, and then also looking at setting up um, the mechanisms to determine our work going forward after this legislative session. Well, what are some of the things that you are hoping to do with WASIC going forward after lobby day? So the idea is to build a coalition within our state uh, where we can, um, as a a state organization, uh, influence our legislators. Uh, State organizations have greater sway than individual organizations. So then we also are going to look at, as a state, um, how do what do we take as positions on federal legislation and influencing that process as well? So it'll be in state and it'll also be um, federally. Well, again, I think it's great. It really does. Having a coordinated group like that really does increase the clout, uh, the political clout that uh, Indivisible within Washington state has. So that's awesome. And I know that you would like to issue a call to everybody listening to provide the name of their group, uh, location, uh, number of members, uh, if, it, if that group is not currently part of WASIC. So uh, if somebody suspects that they might not be part of WASIC and they would like their group to be, where can they get in touch? 
So we have an email address. It's uh, WASIC team. So W-A-S-I-C team at gmail.com. You can send me an email. It contains the group name, location, number of members, uh, leadership, and how to get hold of those individuals. Right. Um, if you have a, if, if an indiv indivisible chapter has a legislative rep, that would be um, a really great person to have the information on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Carolyn Barcliffe, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, you are the lead organizer of Lobby Day and the spearhead of WASIC. And we are so happy that you were able to join us. Thank you. I just want to say, however, this is not something I'm doing on my own, all by myself. This is something that there's other people around the state working on, and it couldn't be done without them. I really appreciate everybody who stepped up to participate in planning our lobby day and also um, in encouraging the vision of the group going forward. Understood. Well, thank you to all. And next up, we will talk about some of the week's headlines with our Week in Review segment. And to do that, we are joined by our friend Chris Petzold. She is founder and head of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Chris. Hello there. Hello. And also Shasti Conrad. She is the chair of the King County Democrats. Hey, Shasti. Hello. So let's just jump in and uh, we'll talk first about the State of the Union. Uh, and before I do, I will just say I'm sorry to both of you for making you uh, have to endure that. That was not nice of me. Um, but this was <laughs> Trump's first State of the Union after the blue wave that happened in the midterms. So I just do want to run down a few notable moments. Um, uh, I want to start with all of the Democratic women agreeing to wear suffragist white, uh, including our contingent from Washington, Pramila Jayapal, Susan Del Bene, and Kim Schreier. It was a very stark visual. Um, Chris, what did you make of that? It, it was such an impactful thing to me. I, I saw some of the, the pictures earlier in the day, but then to see them there on the floor of the house, um, it, it just... Well, it made me so proud of all the work we did, you know, to flip the house and to make that happen. And then, you know, to see so many women and women of color um, and, you know, just the diversity that we bring on the Democratic side. I wasn't quite sure I was going to see that in my lifetime. So I'm yeah. I'm just very, very happy about that. And it really was a contrast to all of the, you know, the white men in black suits sitting on the other side. Um, and then there was, of course, the moment that uh, was very much unintended by Trump, where uh, he talked about women filling 58 percent of the newly created jobs last year. And then the freshman yep. woman jumped up and spontaneously chanted USA. So that was an awesome moment. Um, yep. So, Shasti, you know, past presidents, when they have given the State of the Union speech after a midterm loss, they have acknowledged that loss in some way. Uh, Clinton certainly did it in 94. Bush did it in 06. Obama did it in 2010. Was there anything that Trump did or said in the in Tuesday's State of the Union that indicated to you that he acknowledged that the dynamics of power have really shifted against him now in D.C.? I thought it, I mean, it was it was interesting, but also very much in alignment with, you know, the rhetoric that we've heard from Trump and the Trump administration, you know, I think since since the very beginning, which is he opened on a somewhat bipartisan line of, you know, kind of he talked a little bit about unity and then, you know, sort of his true colors started to come out and the the topics that he focused on, the um, the sort of focus was definitely uh, still very deeply divisive. And there wasn't, I mean, you know, I remember when uh, George W. Bush 
was presiding and giving the State of the Union when uh, Nancy Pelosi was first um, speaker. And, you know, he acknowledged that. And I didn't see Trump really acknowledge that. I think he unintentionally walked into that moment um, that Chris just talked about with um, acknowledging the number of women that were, you know, newly members of of Congress. And that, I think, was the closest that we came to any kind of indication that he 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 saw that there was a change. But no, I mean, it's still it's still the same beating of the drum of, you know, he's the best that ever could be and that the economy is going great and everything is great. And, you know, which we all know to be lies, lies, lies. So it, it felt like in some ways a sort of jumbled mess. But that is in alignment with what Trump has given us for the last two years. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, and uh, she had uh, an extraordinary night in so many ways. Um, I think she was just sitting there behind him with such a stark reminder of how much the dynamics have changed. Um, and then, of course, there were the moments where she uh, occasionally looked at what I presume was a printout of the speech, uh, but just <laughs> the visual of her reading while Trump was talking was was striking. And then, of course, there was the meme-worthy moment uh, when Trump said, we must reject the politics of revenge and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise in the common good. And then Nancy Pelosi stood and gave Trump what uh, Pat Noswalt called the you clap. So <laughs> it was a great moment. Um, so let's talk about the line in the speech where uh, Trump talked about the health of the economy and then shifted and said, if there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. And um, <laughs> setting aside that that is a terrible line that to me sounded like if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit um, because Stephen Miller is a terrible speechwriter. Um, Chris, how did that line sit with you? It felt like a threat, didn't it? It really did. And he's continuing to kind of carry that thread through as more of the investigations have been uh, announced this week. And I'm just like, welcome to your new world, pal. Uh, I heard some of the the pundits uh, in the pre-show uh, talking about how he literally could be delivering this speech from his knees. That's how politically weak he is, um, which is a funny visual. Um, But um, yeah, but literally like this is your new reality. You better get used to it. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled again. Like it just brought back all of the work that everyone across the country did to flip the house. And this is yet another manifestation of the change that we brought um, in terms of checks and balances on the executive branch that were just wholly missing in the past two years. Absolutely. And, you know, as it turns out, there, uh, as, as you're alluding to, there is going to be investigation. Um, Adam Schiff has announced he has a five-point plan to look into Russian interference and even the question of whether Trump and his family are working as Russian operatives, um, which Trump is now <laughs> calling presidential harassment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, actually, at the moment that he said that line, uh, the peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation, the camera cut briefly to Adam Schiff and he chuckled and then Pelosi made a gesture to the Democrats to not respond with um, laughter, <laughs> but the, the horse was kind of out of the barn at that point. Shasti, what did yeah. you make of that line in that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it certainly was 
a threat. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, it was definitely meant to send a strong message. I, I mean, he he made a similar threat, you know, the day after the midterms um, in that, you know, crazy press conference. And so, you know, I, what I've appreciated is Nancy Pelosi's very, you know, strong sort of hand on the on the tiller of, you know, we're moving forward. She hasn't blinked once at him, you know, when he's he's made those types of threats in the past. Um, and, you know, there's so many, you know, sh- new, strong, mostly women members who I think are just saying, no, we're going to we're going to see this through. And as the number of indictments pile up, I mean, it is it, it it's it's all it's it's telling. Um, and and I think, you know, harkens back to the Watergate days. Also, it felt very much like you know, the line from Nixon's speech about, you know, um, this being this sort of like we're not moving forward. And then, you know, he didn't finish. He didn't finish that term. So Mm -hmm. I think that is definitely where we are headed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there really was that same sort of defiant feel um, from Trump that you saw from Nixon. And it sort of gives you the impression that the writing is on the wall. Uh, Fingers crossed. But so given that and given the I don't know, the, the, the sort of incompatible halves that Shasti was talking about earlier, where, you know, part of it was an appeal for bipartisanship. He was talking about infrastructure, paid family leave. Um, he talked about a, like funding to fight children's cancer. But then there was the other portion that was just red meat for his base, um, the bit about socialism and then curbing women's mm-hmm. reproductive rights, fear mongering about immigration and the need for the wall, which we kind of saw was coming. Um, mm-hmm. Chris, I'm wondering, just taken in total, was there anything? in there that made you rethink or recalibrate how you plan to work in opposition to Trump's agenda for the next two years or uh, or however long he's uh, he's in office? No, I think it's just more stuff, different day. Um, and um, the difference now is we have more people on our team with the Democrats um, mm. in control of the House. Um, there was nothing. I, I thought it was really rich about the what he was talking about protecting the unborn um, while keeping, you know, kids separated from their parents on the border. That and, struck me, too, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, you know, no, no um, protection of the children killed by gun violence every year. Um, it, that it it was just all complete BS, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and well, Shasti, was there anything in the speech that changed uh, the strategy for you in terms of how you plan to work in opposition? I think that it's it's you know for us now that uh, you know in my role as chair of King County Democrats, I think it just it keeps me it helps me to keep focus. You know, our focus is that we have to just keep moving forward with building our party, with getting our messaging out, which is what Stacey Abrams did. I mean, mm-hmm. I felt like she did she did exactly what I'm hopeful that the Democrats will do, which is that she set forth um, her own story, her own vision. And and really tied it back to what the Democratic Party's principles and values, you know, are and should be. And that's what that's what we have to keep doing. We have to keep telling our story and doing the work. Um, and, you know, honestly, I mean, I hadn't <laughs> I, my full, true confessions. I hadn't planned on watching the State of the Union. And again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to make you do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, Stefan, fine, I will. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because I find him to be. 
somewhat inconsequential to the work that we have at hand. We still have to knock doors. We still have to make phone calls. We still have to have a compelling message. We still have to do the work to push our legislation. And we have to hold the line. You know, we cannot back down from tough battles. And, you know, I feel like that tide has been turning since we, you know, won in the midterm, since we took back the House. So, no, I mean, it really, I think as Chris said, too, it, it doesn't change it. It just, it gives me further resolve to just be as focused as possible to see us through to yeah. 2020. Well, yeah. s- since you uh, made that segue for me so easily, let's go ahead and shift over and talk about Stacey Abrams <laughs> and the Democratic rebuttal, um, which, uh, Shasti, before we begin, I was saying that, uh, you know, having had Trump on my television, I felt like um, Stacey Abrams was the equivalent of burning sage to kind of get, you know, Trump's uh, terrible mojo out of my television set. Um, So she is not an office holder, but she is considered a rising star. Uh, She's also the first African-American woman ever to give the rebuttal to a State of the Union. Um, Chris, what did you make of the Democrats' choice of Abrams? I could not have thought of a better choice. I mean, she... She just handled herself um, with such dignity in the face of stealing the election in Georgia uh, last November. And the way that she didn't concede but recognized that she wasn't going to be governor. Um, And, you know, just like you said, she was the sage to Trump. I mean, how much more opposite Mm. of a vision of who we are can you paint um than her and um i was i was stoked to see who they picked yeah you know it's uh, she did such an extraordinary job and it's usually such a, a thankless gig um it's it's often done more damage to political careers than has helped them in the past uh, i'm thinking of uh, bobby jindal or maybe even marco rubio's flop sweat <laughs> um the, shasti did you think that it was notable that the democrats did not choose somebody who is running for president in 2020 I did. I did. And I, I mean, I think it, I think it was a, I think it was a really solid, strong decision because what that, what that signals to me is that they are being thoughtful and have potentially learned, I think, very important, important lessons from 2016, which is to not be seen as putting thumbs on any scales and to Mm -hmm. be elevating, you know, people who voices we need to be hearing from, you know, and, and Stacey Abrams is, the face of the of the new party you know and should be governor of of georgia and i do think that there that there will be discussion around voter suppression and gerrymandering and i think that stacey abrams is able to help elevate that conversation i think you know being able to showcase a really strong woman of color is really important and I, I think it was a great move um, and also a signal to that we want to play in the South. You know, I think yeah. that mm-hmm. um, you, we really feel like we can we can still speak to those voters. And that that tells me that the folks on high are being thoughtful in a way that, um, you know, I honestly would have feared that they might not have been. And, and that makes me a lot more hopeful and excited about um, you know, the the direction that we're going in. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you talk point. about the South, and uh, she was one of three candidates in the midterm election from the South who ran unapologetically progressive platforms and came way closer to winning than anybody expected. Um, the other two are Beto and Andrew Gillum. Um, and because of that, I think a lot of people see the, the progressive wing uh, and progressive platforms of the 
Democratic Party is being ascendant. Um, Chris, did you feel that Abrams successfully articulated that progressive vision for you in her speech? I think so in terms of uh, painting, uh, talking about um, everyday people and the impact on um, of on them from the Trump administration over these past couple of years and even before that, honestly. Um, and, you know, reclaiming what is rightfully ours on the Democratic side in terms of we are the party of the people. We're the yeah. ones that care about you and your right to vote and your right to dignity of work and all of those things. And the Republicans are not. And so I really appreciated uh, her her story um, and her talk about protecting protecting just everyday people and that's exactly what we need to do in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I think it really is. You and I have talked uh, elsewhere about this very thing that you know GOP populism has hurt people. Progressive mm-hmm. populism helps people, and we really need to drive that message home uh, over mm-hmm. the next two years. And I, I feel like, for for my money, Abrams uh, was a, an extraordinarily powerful shot across the bow. Um, so you know, she hit back at Trump on a couple of points. You know, it's meant to be a rebuttal. Um, And so she kind of went after him on the shutdown on immigration. Um, But some commentators, uh, including Ed Kilgore in New York Magazine, wish that she had gone after him a little harder, particularly on race. Um, And she said at the end, quote, even as I am very disappointed by the president's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. Shasti, did you want her to go after Trump harder? I think it fit her um, appropriately. And I think sometimes we as Democrats get caught with sort of chasing our own tails. And I think sometimes and honestly, I think, you know, we can look to Elizabeth Warren sort of is in the midst of a little bit of a debacle in part because I think she chased Trump down. You know, she was trying she was trying to play Trump's game. And Mm. what I saw with Stacey Abrams is that she played her own game. She presented herself. She told her story. She stood by her values. And I think that is that's what we as Democrats have got to be doing. I mean, there there are times when we have to hit back. There are times there. I think there are some messaging lessons, actually, that we can learn from the other side. But we are going to end up in rabbit holes more often than not if we just play if we let Trump set the terms right. and set the tone. And so I I actually didn't mind it. Um, and I and I just think that it, it's not who Stacey Abrams is. I think she's someone who leads with dignity. And I, you know, and really wanted to set forth with her mission, with her message and her vision. And, you know, I, I appreciated that. And I, you know, the pundits will, you know, they'll have their, they'll, their say. And I think they are better poised sometimes to you know, play those games with Trump and hit back in that way. Yeah. You mentioned personal stories and that's such a, uh, I think that's such the right tack to take with somebody like Trump who is all about agenda setting. I mean, she uh, told, uh, Abrams told the story of, you know, growing up with their father and toggling between, you know, being sort of toggling between the working class and the middle class. And it was obvious that it was a genuine story. And I think that's something that, um, you know, Democratic candidates do need to embrace as a way to sort of set and control their own narrative. But Chris, what did you make of her line about her being very disappointed that uh, she said, even though I'm very disappointed by the president's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. What did you make of that? 
I said out loud uh, to myself, uh, well, I do. I mean, <laughs> I do not want him to succeed in implementing his policies. Um, I I wasn't among those who wish he would have hit back harder, but I certainly don't want uh, him to succeed by any means at all. And so uh, I agree that uh, it was great for her to show a positive vision and not fight him, you know, head to hand to hand combat. I think uh, the 2016 uh, mid um, the the primaries uh, showed us that it, you know, he just wins in those kind of battles. So we need to figure out a different way. And I think her way was just being positive and rising above it because he'll certainly do um, everything to drag us down. We just can't let him. Well, you have often said that the antidote to fear is hope, and I happen to agree. And so personal stories, hope, uh, I think those are two uh, places that we can really focus on over the next couple of years. And so then finally this week, uh, let's talk about uh, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz's announcement that he is considering running for president as an independent. Do we have to? But Do we when, have to talk about it? We'll talk about it briefly because, you know, you started something here, Chris, as we talked about on last week's show. So indivisible members across the country have been staging protests in cities where Schultz has been promoting his new book. Um, most recently, there was a protest in Boston, and these protests were actually the brainchild of you. So uh, we talked about that last week on the show, and I want to talk about how that event went in just a second. But Shasti, I'll just ask you first, what's been your reaction to a potential Howard Schultz independent run? Thank you. Next, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I mean, there, you know, it, it's drawn attention. Um, but I, he's also on a book tour, and I honestly think that's he hasn't officially announced. And right. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. And this is mostly just sort of a PR stunt to drive up book sales. Um, I yeah I don't I I don't like wasting time on it honestly um I I think it, it is a big mistake um I don't think that he should I don't think he's the right person and I think this idea that you know someone who has no experience in this type of leadership role no experience in government or politics should just automatically feel as though they are you know able to just do it just because Trump did it I don't think that's the right match at all um. So my preference is that we keep it moving and I don't think it's worth a lot of time or attention because I don't think it's real. Well, you know, Leah Greenberg said in a tweet recently that uh, she feels that after Trump is gone, that this is the last time that we should ever hear anybody talk about running the country as a business. So uh, (laughs) another CEO president is the last thing that we need. But, you know, um, depending on who you ask, some commentators are saying that uh, because of Schultz's neoliberal policy stances, uh, he's anti-union, he's against Medicare for all, that he would actually peel off more Republican votes than Democratic votes. Chris, what do you make of that line of reasoning? Why take the chance? We don't, I mean, the fact is we don't know. And 2016 proves that anything at all can happen. Um, and so I just, if the, if the situation is we could be stuck with Trump for another four years. So, and we don't know how those people will vote. So why even take a chance? I agree. Well, so, <laughs> but I'll just ask you, uh, Shasti, I'll put the same question to you. Do you see Schultz as more of a threat to the Democrats than the Republicans in 2020? I, I agree with, with, with both of you with, with um, the idea that we don't actually know for sure I think it's more just air, it's airtime. And 
I wish we were in a place where we could talk about multiple party, you know, candidates being viable, but with Trump, with Trump in that seat, I, we have to go all in with the democratic party and we've got to go all in with the best candidate we can from this party to win. And I, there's no, there's no room for playing around on that one for my perspective. Yeah, I mean, if, if you consider the the fact that Hillary Clinton won in Midwestern states by um, five digits, you know, a, a third party candidate could easily peel those votes away. And then, yeah, like Chris said, we wind up with Trump for another four years. Oh, my God. OK, so, well, Chris, talk, talk about how the Seattle event went last week. It got international coverage. <laughs> yeah. So I got there about. Uh, four o'clock or so. Um, it wasn't due to start until six. And I rounded the corner and I saw all the bicycle police and the police barricades and the news trucks, multiple, and the helicopter overhead. And I just kind of smiled a little smile and I thought, I did this. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, like, it's just a message to everyone, you know. If you don't like something, do something about it. You know, there's so much that we can just do if we, if we feel passionately about it. And I certainly felt passionate about doing something about this. And uh, we had tremendous speakers. So Tina Podlodowski from um, the State Democratic Party. Uh, we had Dow Constantine. We had a farm worker, Spanish-speaking farm worker from the Yakima Valley, talking about from uh, representing uh, United Farm Workers uh, Union, um, and she was talking about the abuses on dairy farmer farms that have been occurring. Um, and and these are know, clients. Dairy Gold is actually used by Starbucks chains. Yes. And during Schultz's tenure at Starbucks, uh, he did nothing about this um, and they still haven't done anything about it. And so just hearing from her, it was so amazing. Um, and then, of course, um, the Jason Reed, who uh, uh, was the director of the Sonics documentary. Um, it was really cool to see the Sonics out there, too. And, you know, I, I think that uh, it, it put this event on the map and um, he avoided the press after his event. He had promised press availability, and then he walked right past them, and they weren't too happy about that. And some are saying that that was due to the protest. Yeah, I think it's because he wasn't too happy about us being out there. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. he's been getting flamed from both sides pretty soundly. Um, Shasti, you have kind of spoken your piece about this, but I'm wondering if you think he sticks it out or if you think that uh, the pressure is getting to him. This is speculation, but do you think he's going to fold pretty soon? I, I, w- I would not be surprised if on the conclusion of the book tour, he goes back to his piles of money and keeps it moving. <laughs> piles of money and coffee. All right. Yeah, that's, that's, wasn't that the end of Scarface? Anyway, uh, well, so Chris, if he does wind up, you know, sticking around for a little bit longer, uh, do you have any other tricks up your sleeve? Well, he's he's got a CNN town hall coming up next week, so I think we should put some Twitter Twitter pressure on them for raising him up. I mean, they did the same thing with Donald Trump, and look what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I think that's the next thing. And there's more protests planned um, as he continues on his book tour. So uh, this isn't going away. I'm going to keep pressing. I know that we have other stuff uh, to do, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time and let them know that we. We do not want another billionaire, and we're going to keep calling him a billionaire, even though he doesn't want to be called that anymore. A person 
with means or something. Yeah, person person of means. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so before we yeah. go, Shasti, I, I would just love to give you the floor um, to just, I know that because of snowpocalypse that the King County Dems bylaws meeting is going to be uh, rescheduled, but I will just uh, ask you, it, I know it's going to be rescheduled for February 23rd, but uh, you've got a, a heck of a, a lineup. Who is who's going to be there? Yes, I know we are. Uh, we're disappointed that we have to postpone it, but we are still moving forward with holding the meeting because we still believe that uh, it's really important that the PCOs have the ability to have a say in the organizing you know, foundation and principles of King County Democrats. So we will be ho- holding it on February 23rd. And we have confirmation that Pramila Jayapal and Adam Smith and Dow Constantine will all be in attendance. And we are likely to get videos from Attorney General Bob Ferguson and Kim Schreier and Suzanne Delbene also, um, who were planning on being um, uh, with us on this Saturday, but are not able to be with us on the 23rd, unfortunately. Um, but yes, we're still... We, we are still moving forward. We have a final report from our bylaws and rules committee, um, and they've spent, uh, we calculated almost 300 hours <laughs> working um, since December 1st, working to try to get the um, you know best, uh, best ideas down on paper for really opening up the King County Democrats and making it as fair and as you know representative of King County as possible. Um, and so we've gotten feedback from all parts of the county and we're really excited about getting to share that oppor- share that information and and uh, sort of have that conversation with all of the PCOs um, about what kind of party we want to have. Well, it's wonderful to see how Vision 2020, which was your platform, how that's all playing out uh, and the Democrats uh, in King County are very, very fortunate to have you. So I will have information about that on the website at indivisiblepodcast.org. That will do it for this week in review. Chris Petzold, thank you. Thank you. Shasti Conrad, thank you. Thank you. And we will end this week with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is, of course, Indivisible Washington's 8th District Research Team Leader. And we will have some calls to action. Hey, Stephen. Hey, how's it going, Stephen? Good, man. Um, So, you know, since we spoke in our first segment this week about lobbying at the state level, I would like to focus this week's calls to action on some state legislature items, and I know you have them. Um, The first has to do with State Senate Bill 5116. This is an environmental bill. Uh, First, tell us about it. Yeah, no, this is a a pretty important bill, a good one to uh, focus on. So um, obviously, as we're trying to uh, do everything we can to fight climate change, especially here in Washington state, um, this is what uh, some people refer to as the 100 percent clean energy bill. Um, So what it's trying to do is transition to a clean, affordable and and reliable energy future. And the two big things that really are worthy of some attention in this bill are uh, the goals to try and have our electricity come, 80% of our electricity come from renewable sources by 2030, and 90% uh, to come from renewable sources by uh, 2040. Um, so that's a that's a big deal, and the um, the companies that generate electricity here in Washington State are pushing back very hard on that requirement. They would like to weaken that requirement mm. um, and and get it back to a level closer to where we are today. You know, the less um, we require of them, then then the less they're going to do, and it gives them the opportunity to use either 
coal, which we've only got one coal plant, or or natural gas, uh, both of which are not great for the environment. So anyway, those utilities are trying to weaken uh, that requirement. So we really want to ask our legislators not to allow that requirement to be weakened. And another uh, requirement that we would like our legislators to protect is um, right now there's a provision um, that if uh, utilities don't comply with that requirement, 80%, 90% by 2030, 2040, that they will be fined um, $100 per megawatt hour as a penalty for for not complying. And they're obviously trying to get that, that penalty reduced so that they won't have to pay any penalty. So so this is, you know, legislation in action. A great law has been proposed. Um, people that will be affected by it are trying to fight against it. So we really want our legislators um, on on uh, this committee to, um, the Ways, Senate Ways and Means Committee, to um, not allow those uh, provisions to be weakened. Okay. Yeah. Hard to believe that uh, energy concerns would fight back against something like this, but uh, here we are. Okay. So next we have a state house action on gun safety. Um, And this concerns state reps who sit on the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee. This is a call to action specifically for them. So first, how do we find out if our particular representative sits on that committee? Great question. So what uh, your listeners listeners will want to do is just go to uh, ledge.wa.gov, really simple, and there are um, some links there where I, I found the easiest way to do it is uh, you find a link for um, um, committee uh, members by committee. So um, they can look up who is on the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, and they will be able to see if their representative is, is uh, sits on that committee. And what we want them to do is to – the members of that committee, the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, to uh, hold hearings on uh, the bills that we're going to talk about and, uh, and pass them out of the committee. Well, tell us about those bills. There are three of them, right? Exactly right. So the three bills that we would like uh, our legislators to approve and, and pass on to the next committee are um, first HB House Bill 1068. So again, the legislative process, this bill has already been modified. Originally, it was um, a bill to limit the capacity of magazines for firearms to 10 rounds. Um, it's already been proposed to be increased to 15 rounds. We would certainly not like to see that uh, be the the final result. So we would certainly like our legislators to um, pass this out of their committee, but not to um, increase the size capacity uh, any greater than 10 rounds if they can. Um, but certainly to pass some kind of a limit for, for magazine capacity, whatever they do in this committee. Yeah. Um, the second bill... Uh, House Bill 1739 de- deals with um, printed guns, what what people call ghost guns or undetectable guns. Um, we certainly don't want people to be able to um, print a 3D gun that can't be um, detected. So the hearing on that uh, bill has been postponed, and so we certainly would like them to support, to, to oppose the ability to um, 3D print a gun um, and to pass that, that law out of the committee and on to the next one. And the last one, would be uh, HB House Bill 1319. It has been heard already. This is a really important bill because it would allow cities and municipalities to uh, regulate um, open carry in local government meetings. So this bill is especially important to uh, the Washington League of Women Voters that they feel, and I think some of your listeners can agree with this, that we've we've seen pictures of uh, open 
Kerry in in some um, uh, civic meetings, and that really puts a, uh, a damper. And it feels somewhat intimidating. Yeah. At least me personally, I know I feel somewhat intimidated when I see people carrying uh, weapons in a, in a meeting. So we want to. Uh, this bill would give um, local munis- municipalities the ability to regulate. Um, to stop people from openly carrying weapons in a, in a civic meeting. Now, um, it would not permit people with, uh, or it would not prohibit, I mean, uh, people who have uh, concealed permits to to uh, carry their weapons. They would still be allowed to, but it would prevent people from openly carrying weapons to meetings, which personally I think is a good thing. I do too. I think it seems like, uh, it, it just seems like common sense. Um, so just to sum up, uh, people can go to ledge.wa.gov, find out if their representative sits on the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, and if he or she is part of that committee, uh, then give them a call and ask them to support those three bills. And I will have more information about that at indivisiblepodcast.org. Okay, so then at the national level, there is another uh, so-called messaging bill, and this is also about gun violence. This is H.R. 8. So briefly, just tell us what that bill does. This bill would um, implement, finally, the requirement to have a background check for every uh, firearm sale, as your listeners probably know, um, when a a licensed gun dealer, a a gun shop, um, sells a weapon, they have to um, uh, check the buyer's background and make sure that they are not a criminal or otherwise prohibited from owning a weapon. But at gun shows or in private sales, that's not required. So H.R. 8 is, again, likely a messaging bill. We'll talk about what that means in a second, but that would be a bill for Democrats to demonstrate that they will, um, if if they're able to um, pass this bill through and get a presidential signature, to require a background check on every uh, weapon sale in America. Now, this bill has got 230 sponsors, co-sponsors right now. In fact, I was a little gratified to see that that even includes eight Republican um, co-sponsors. So your your uh, Democratic legislator is almost certainly uh, co-sponsored this bill. But what we want him or her to do, in addition to co-sponsoring it, is work to pass it. Um, then it'll go into the Senate. Um, certainly, Mitch McConnell will not want to take it up more than likely, perhaps, Chuck Schumer will be able to force a vote anyway, as he was able to do on immigration. And we certainly would like to put Republicans in the position of having to take a position on uh, whether they're opposed to, to background checks or not. So even if this bill doesn't pass, it doesn't pass, it, um, it does an important uh, job in that it forces Republicans to take a position on what seems like uh, a really um, uh, something that, that uh, the vast majority of Americans support, which is making sure there's a background check for every gun uh, weapon sale in America. Yeah, you know, I I actually looked this up and some 85 percent of all Americans support background checks, uh, including 74 percent of NRA members. Uh, This is verified by PolitiFact. Uh, It's hard to believe this is something we're doing uh, messaging bills around. uh, But here we are. Uh, And yeah, and I should explain what a messaging bill is. So this is a bill that likely won't become law because it won't get past the Senate and won't be signed by the president. But it sends a message about what the Democrats would do if and when they have the power to pass it. Uh, And it also informs the platforms of the many, many Democrats running for president in 2020. So there you go. Uh, Well, Stephen, thank you as always for the great information. And we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Talk to you next week, Stephen.
And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Carolyn Barcliffe. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>